ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, I'm suggesting that blackbirding has never finished and I'm also saying that slavery hasn't finished either. That's Bundaberg-based pastoral carer Geoffrey Smith and he was speaking to the ABC ahead of giving evidence to a Senate inquiry that was looking into the treatment of seasonal workers in Australia. Now, slavery is not a word we think belongs in the modern world, but in Australia, up to 41,000 people are estimated to be living and working in conditions of modern slavery. And cases of it hit the press all too often, like this one a month ago. It's alleged workers on board several vessels in the Gulf of Carpentaria were abused, assaulted and had water and food withheld between 2020 and 2023. Police have now charged a 47-year-old Karumba man with 46 offences, including slavery, torture and rape. Today in Australia-wide, slavery in the modern age and how we as a nation plan to tackle it. I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. Human rights advocates are calling for strengthening the powers of Australia's first national anti-slavery commissioner, including the ability to enforce compliance. The Global Slavery Index found that on any given day in 2021, there are an estimated 41,000 people living and working in conditions of modern slavery here in Australia. Just last week, a North Queensland fishing operator had charges upgraded relating to alleged slavery and torture of deckhands on his fishing boats. The ABC's work reporter, Bronwyn Harbert, is covering the Senate committee inquiry into the new anti-slavery commissioner role, and she joins me now. Now, Bronwyn... Bring me back. What what brought on this inquiry? Well, look, the Hashanade, the federal government committed to establishing Australia's first national anti-slavery commissioner, which was part of an election promise. And look, for context, there already is a modern slavery bill in place uh, in the federal parliament, but this is an add-on. And also to be clear, there is a standalone anti-slavery commissioner in New South Wales already. But effectively, this commissioner role is pitched as a position to provide monitoring and oversight as well as national leadership in raising awareness of modern slavery risks. Uh, Now, the the legislation has already passed the lower house of parliament earlier this month, and then it comes up to the Senate where the relevant committee is tasked with looking at this bill, which is what I've uh, been tasked to do. Now, there were more than 40 submissions across various industry sectors and on government organisations and specialists working uh, really on the front line of some of those anti-slavery programs. Uh, the Human Rights Council representative, Karen Adams, uh, she spoke at the inquiry and, and talked about the powers of the commissioner needing to be strengthened, really to, to be there for greater enforcement and also to have the power to investigate. There's an estimated 41,000 people just within Australia alone who are subject to modern slavery based on some of the best information that we have, noting that this is a, a difficult area to gather precise data on. But there's clearly kind of whole parts of of industries here and certainly in global supply chains where people are being subject to some of the worst forms of uh, labour exploitation and are in conditions that it's very hard for us to to even imagine. And in order to actually address that, it's going to require a really coordinated effort and dedicated focus and 
That's why we think this office is so important. That's Karen Adams, who is from the Human Rights Law Centre. Brown, I think, you know, people could be listening and going, what are they talking about? What is modern slavery? Can you explain that to me? Well, there are different definitions, but effectively modern slavery is encompassing when an an individual is exploited by another, whether that's for personal or commercial gain, you know, whether they're tricked or coerced or forced or something along those lines. And we did hear at the inquiry from... um, a number of, of different businesses uh, talking about you know the, the, these issues at the moment. And as you know, there's been a, um, a number of cases of modern slavery making headlines, the most front of mind being a far north Queensland fisherman charged recently with torture and slavery over the alleged mistreatment of deckhands on board um, his fishing vessels. You know, we've heard other cases in, in recent years, including concerns over conditions in you know, the rubber glove manufacturing industry in Malaysia or um, clothing being made by, uh, uh, in China's um, Xinjiang province uh, using forced labour allegations there. The, uh, the inquiry heard from the director of Be Slavery Free, Carolyn Kiddo, who works with businesses and industry to eliminate slavery from the supply chain. And uh, she told senators that businesses really wanted leadership from government on the issue. It's much easier for a business to be able to say, we're altering our procurement processes because our government has legislated and made statements that we should do so. That's much easier for business. Do you actually want the government to make this statement or do you want 12,000 fashion houses to have to deal with it one by one? No government likes to be accused of there being modern slavery in its supply chains. We're all horrified that it's happened not just once but twice, once just before Christmas and once just after Christmas in, in the fishing industry in Australia. But the government's role in this to actually make it possible for business to do good business is really important. Carolyn Kitto, who's the director of Be Slavery Free. So that's a business point of view. What about a union point of view, Bronwyn? Were they satisfied with the power of the new anti-slavery commissioner? Are they, you know, as the bill currently stands? I would say no to that. There were union representatives there from the Australian Council of Trade Unions and also the Maritime Union. And um, the ACTU said that, you know, definitively in the current form that the incoming commissioner wouldn't have enough power to make a meaningful impact in this space and that there'd already been anti-slavery legislation in place for three years and an independent review showed there hadn't been um, meaningful compliance or action taken by relevant companies in that time. And the Maritime Union of Australia, the representative there, Rod Pickett, he told senators that modern slavery is widespread across the, the global shipping sector. Everything from wage through to forced labour, for example. The spectrum of what's generally described as modern slavery are prevalent in the shipping industry. And with the global shortage of seafarers, there is con- continuous pressure on seafarers to work beyond their contracts of employment, which under the ILO's Maritime Labour Convention uh, cannot or should not exceed 11 months in any one period of employment. But increasingly, ship owners are requiring, through a range of means, some legal, some not, to require their seafarers to remain on board, uh, which in our view constitutes forced labour.
That's Rod Pickett from the Maritime Union of Australia and certainly that the plight of seafarers were definitely in the spotlight during COVID, during the pandemic. So what happens now, Bronwyn? What's the next step? Well, look, despite some of the reservations made by representatives at this inquiry, many I've spoken with say they'd still welcome the introduction of the commissioner, even in what they describe is as an imperfect form that great shouldn't be the enemy of good. And look, with bipartisan support, the legislation could be passed as early as next week in the Senate. ABC work reporter Bronwyn Herbert, thanks for bringing us up to date on Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. ABC Australia Wide. We head now to the goldfields of Western Australia. Now, we all know Australia is in the middle of a rental crisis. Sydney cider Alice McDonough decided she was going to take things in her own hands when it came to rent. She didn't want all of her money to go to renting in Sydney. So what she did was bought into what she says is the cheapest house in Australia. Our reporter, Julia Bertolio, visited Alice in Norseman in the $12,000 home she is very proud of. But it also needs quite a bit of work to be up to the standard most of us are used to. It's 42 degrees in Norseman, at the edge of the Nullabor, and Alice McDonough is trying to keep herself and her dog, Fifi, cool, with wet cloth. This is my air conditioning. It's called muslin cloth. Alice's house does not have air conditioning. It's also not connected to mains power. And to get water, she needs to venture out into the backyard. So it's a little bit of a fixer-upper. Basically no funds to do the ceiling, connect to power, do any plumbing work. So I've just done my own things that have worked. Sort of like camping, only you've got a roof over your head. Just not a full ceiling. There's a few issues with this house, but that's quite okay. Up behind me, um, we're missing a bit of roof, uh, but that we're going to fix with some cardboard. Alice says she has everything she needs. And when the electrician told her she could not connect her house to the grid, she did not dismay. Well, you know, most people would like to have a ceiling. Most people would like to have some aircon. Most people would like running water, which I sort of have, kind of. When in actual fact, all I needed to buy was some portable power stations and some solar panels and the sun. I need the sun. With those, she can have light and cook. Look at my egg. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and charge the computer she uses to work from home. As long as the sun is shining, I have no, I'm fine. I've got electricity. Power? No problems. Money? <laughs> if, if I could grow money from pointing a solar panel at the sky, I would love that. You know what I mean? Money has always been a source of stress for Alice and the reason behind the move from Sydney to outback Western Australia. All my money was going to rent and I just wanted to stop paying rent. It was extremely stressful. I think I was working more than one job and then plus paying bills and everything else. It was just a little bit too much. And I was like, I don't want to live like this. So I was living in Sydney, but I wanted to find the cheapest house in Australia. So I did an internet search and I found the cheapest house in Australia, which was this one. $12,000. And then there, at that time, there's first home buyer's grant. So it made it $5,000 all up for a house. And that's when I first looked at it and went, I've, this, is, this may solve my problems or may cause more problems. Who knows? 
At the very least, it was going to be an adventure. Alice enjoyed the adventure, but was not immune to culture shock. In Sydney, you see everybody, all sorts of people. In Norseman, you see the same ones every day because <laughs> there's about two or three hundred people. So it's very different. Um, suddenly you're in this whole new world. Like this is a world of its own. It's not like any other world that you may imagine if you live in a capital city and have never lived in the outback at all. After five years in Norseman, Alice decided to give city life another go. Then I went to Perth and started doing exactly the opposite of what I came here to do, which was pay all this money for rent. It was about the same as what I was paying in Sydney, believe it or not. So it was about $360. But the last couple of years, it's gone up by about $200 a week where I was living. And the owner had sold my house. And I was looking at all the real estate websites and it was like what I was renting was $500, $600 a week. And I'm like, there's no way. I, I, I can't. I'm going to be homeless if I don't sort this out immediately, you know. But given I had a dog and me and limited funds, I thought, what can I do? And I thought I'll buy my house back and then I don't have to worry about this worsening real estate situation. Alice spent all her savings, about $12,000, to buy her old Norseman home back. Now there are a few things she does not have, but she's glad they include a mortgage, rent, bills, and getting yelled at by customers in a job she hates. Working jobs, particularly jobs you don't like, is really, really hard on your mental health. Working a job or two jobs and all that money going on rent and other expenses is not good for one's mental health. When you don't have to worry about all that stuff, there's a whole lot of pressure that's been lifted. So that's what was important to me. Alice has found her solar-powered light at the end of the housing crisis tunnel. But too many Australians are struggling in substandard housing. WA Council of Social Service Acting CEO Rachel Stewart says people with health conditions are particularly vulnerable. There is a lot that needs to be done around substandard housing, particularly in extreme weather conditions, for example, like we're having now. It is extremely difficult in substandard housing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are in substandard accommodation and are really doing it really, really tough. In Norseman, Alice says she found ways to cope with the heat wave. So that's how she stays cool and how I stay cool. Such a good year. Julie Bertolio talking to Alice McDonough, who's living off-grid in what she says is the cheapest house in Australia. ABC Australia Wide. Many Australians love road trips and a pit stop in the humble motel is a common visit for weary travellers. But recently, the motel restaurants attached to these businesses are commonly left vacant or used for storage. Jason Katsaris investigates this trend. Across the country, many motel restaurants in cities and towns were once filled with diners, but an increasing number are now being used as storage, conference rooms or common areas with hidden industrial kitchens often sitting idle. Accommodation Australia CEO Michael Johnson says while some motels continue to operate restaurants, he's seen a trend towards their closure for years. It's been on a steady decline for some years. Uh, it's interesting if you look at the history of motels, uh, the 60s and 70s were when we built a lot of motels 
and that was that was sort of in a steady growth. But then the international market started to travel. So of course, instead of building motels, which were very much for the domestic market, we started bringing and building hotels and international hotels for this international market. Uh, and your motels are still very much looking after your domestic travellers, but we're not building motels anymore. He says, while motels still service a massive part of the domestic accommodation market, more and more motel owners are deciding it's not worth the hassle to keep the restaurant open. There's, there's not too many motels now that are operating their restaurants, or if they are, uh, they've cut back their operating hours substantially. What we found today is, particularly with a, a lot of motels, 15 to 20 rooms, they'd much rather see you use external restaurants and just they'll, they'll just take that room revenue and that's that's their... This sort of becomes their bread and butter. Uh, there's always the difficulty in getting a chef and holding a chef, particularly in regional locations. Around 40 years ago, in 1985, it was a different story. Even though there were 10 million less people in Australia, more motels were being operated. A total of 2,700, 300 more than today. Mr Johnson says the 70s and 80s were the heyday of motel dining, where restaurants were regularly booked out in advance. It was... You know, the good old days where you checked into your motel, you had to make a booking for your dinner and everyone in the motel pretty much dined in the restaurant, you know what I mean, because there was nothing else on, on really offer. But now there is more. There's more offerings out there. It really is the cost as well. Cost of food and beverage has gone up to the extent where you've got to be doing good solid numbers to make a dollar out of it. Otherwise, what you've got is you might have a restaurant and 20 rooms and your rooms are making money and they're subsidising your restaurant, which is losing money. Difficulties running a motel restaurant is a familiar story to motel owner Sachin Gupta in Wodonga, Victoria, who says he was glad to purchase a motel without a restaurant four years ago. Because my some of the friends have has a motel, and some of the friends has a restaurant as well. But normally the restaurant's owners always say, no, it's not more profitable, and as well as it's lots of stress as well sometimes you know you spend lots of money to manage everything but you can't earn anything because if you have a big model for example you have a 50 or 60 rooms or 100 rooms then definitely restaurants should be run easily but if you have less than 20 rooms or should be 20 rooms, then it's very hard to manage. Despite the trend away from in-house motel eats, some business owners are trying to buck the trend and offer something new. Gitu Nanda and her family run a motel at Tawonga in Victoria's high country. They took over the 40-year-old motel six years ago, deciding to reopen the long-forgotten restaurant in a town with a population of only 568. This was a rundown business before. And like 20 years, they never been operated, this restaurant. It was a good opportunity for us to operate and just give more charm to this place. If we open it, it was a good challenge. That was a big challenge for us, like how we're going to operate because it's a small community, how they're going to react and how things will be happen. I mean, we had a bit of fear as well. But everything was here, it was a good chance to open. Like we didn't place any, like kitchen was here, commercial kitchen, cool room, everything was here. That's why we thought, okay, let's, let's give a try. Bringing authentic Indian cuisine to the town has proven to be a drawcard for the business, and Gitu says the high country community has been extremely supportive of their endeavour. So we hired a chef who was Aussie, who could cook, cook Aussie food, and one Japanese chef. So that's how we started, because we didn't know how to start, how to give this start. We got one chef who was Indian, and he was willing to work here. He said, why don't you try Indian cuisine here, start with? I said, look, I don't know how it will happen. He said, we are Indian. 
we know every taste and everything about our food and people will love it he said i bet you 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 won't be regret with your uh, decision with it. i said okay let's give a try on that people love our food they love coming here they love the environment if we clean the room after that we are free what to do there is no much activities to do so we feel like this this is a good thing for us to keep ourselves busy that story from jason katsaris And we're going to go to North Queensland now, where researchers are trying to unlock the mystery surrounding ancient marine creatures which lived 100 million years ago. Using a rare fossil, which was uncovered in the outback, they're using new technologies to see what's below the surface. Rachel Merritt has the story from Townsville in Queensland. Laying just metres below the red dirt in outback Queensland are remnants of ancient life which lived hundreds of millions of years ago. In 2022, the discovery of the fossil of a giant marine reptile launched the tiny northwest town of McKinlay to global attention. But it wasn't paleontologists who made the discovery, rather a trio of amateur fossil hunters known as the Rock Chicks. I got a really, really strong feeling to redig one of my old digs for the third time, and that's when we found our little uh, prince's head. Nicknamed Little Prince after being discovered by grazier Cassandra Prince, it was the first time in Australian history the head and body of a plesiosaur had been uncovered in one piece. The long-necked reptile with flippers is believed to have lived 100 million years ago and existed alongside the dinosaurs. I just started crying because it just hits you afterwards. It just hits you. It's like this is absolutely massive. This is really big. This is a this is almost perfect specimen. Along with her sister, Cynthia Nichols, they spend six months every year combing their 12-hectare property for fossils. But the most common finding, I suppose, to indicate there's something below uh, is vertebrae. And, you know, any sort of fossilised bone, I, I guess you just, you just see it, you get used to looking for that sort of thing. Yeah, and um, also we know our flora and fauna, like we know what to look for, um, the country, where to look. The head and body of the young plesiosaur were transported to the Museum of Tropical Queensland in Townsville, where paleontologists have spent more than a year extracting bone from rock. Partnering with Queensland X-Ray, the skull has been through a CT scanner to allow researchers to see what lays beneath the surface. Senior curator Espen Knutsen says the medical imaging technology, typically reserved for patients with severe internal injuries or disease, could help fill gaps in the evolution of the species. Whether we can see inside the jaws and see if there are several generations of replacement teeth that might tell us something about how often did these things change teeth because like most reptiles they would have several generations of teeth throughout their lives so they not as often as sharks but they would sort of grow these replacement teeth that eventually push out the old teeth and they keep continuously replacing those teeth. We also want to look at the chemistry of the teeth and that can tell us something about whether they might have been migrating in and out of this uh, ancient inland sea perhaps like uh, some whales do so they migrate carve the calves sort of grows in an area for a few months and then they migrate back to where they came from and then they might come back seasonally uh, to certain areas and perhaps these plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs were doing the same thing. In September last year Dr Knutson returned to the McKinlay property and worked alongside the rock chicks to excavate the body of an even bigger plesiosaur. The body was so long it's about three and a half meters long and probably two meters wide or something 
it was just too big to take as one piece. So we had to sort of very carefully surgically remove chunks through a, the middle of the body and then split it in half to be able to take it out in two pieces rather than one, just so it's a more manageable piece to get out because even even uh, the way it was now, the biggest piece weighed probably about eight or 900 kilos. So a pretty sizable chunk of body. Rock chick Cynthia Nichols says even though she's been fossicking in outback Queensland with her sister since they were children, it's still an emotional experience when they make a discovery pretty amazing it's I think when any of the fossil when any fossil of mine personally has been dug up and I had a fish um when I realized that yeah we'd found the fish and the you know we saw a few scales or whatever I I just cried because it was quite emotional um this this thing's been down there for millions and millions of years and and we're the first to to see it. Fossil hunter and self-confessed rock chick Cynthia Nichols finishing off that story from Rachel Merritt and that is Australia wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.